Hey, welcome to Knowles 24-7's On the Bench Podcast. This is Brendan Sinone and a, uh, another episode with another special guest and a, and a week full of special guests. Uh, we wanted to really rip off a bunch of, uh, I shouldn't say rip off, rip out. We wanted to get you guys a bunch of special guests and, and preview FSU season. Like I said, when we first started this with Joey Knight a couple days ago, uh, looking back, looking forward, looking at the present, looking at recruiting, looking at a bunch of different angles uh, on FSU's football team ahead of the 2019 campaign. And uh, and who I brought in today is, is a friend of mine. At least I think he's a friend of mine. I'm not sure if he's going to say the exact same. Uh, but he's really, really smart, really informative, a bit of an instigator on Twitter. Although pretty much he uses uh, mostly, mostly, not always, but usually just, just statistics and analytics to, uh, to enrage the masses. And that's ESPN's David Hale. He used to cover FSU back in 2012 and 2013. He's an excellent writer. I love the way he incorporates numbers into his information and uh, and uses those to help help find trends and, and I guess define uh, his his view of, of how to predict uh, the upcoming season. And, and specifically on this podcast, we're going to talk about FSU, its numbers on offense last year, which you know, news flash uh, weren't very good. But uh, but David's going to explain I guess what those numbers mean, a few really interesting analytics, and, and why maybe that has led him to be a little less bullish on FSU than, than say myself. You know, I'm thinking about eight wins for FSU, and, and not that David is is very far off. But but there's some anecdotal evidence, and and that goes and coincides with some analytic evidence in his mind that points to FSU maybe not having as much of a jump forward as uh, as we think that they may have with the uh, with the addition of Kendall Browse, with revamping the offensive line, with a different quarterback in place. So uh, I'm going to take a quick commercial break, and on the other side, we're going to have David Hale in from ESPN to talk a little bit about uh, his his use of analytics to kind of predict what FSU is going to do this season. Oh, and uh, and if you're not interested in that, I do suggest at least listen to the first few minutes coming up after the break because David does tell a pretty good story about me being stupid, uh, and I think that'll I think that'll uh, be something that, that resonates with a lot of the listeners. All right, guys, so thanks for listening, uh, and enjoy the episode. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, and on the bench right now is the infamous, I want to call him David Dale, but we're going to call him David Hale. Hello, David. Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I, I was going to try to send in Benone. Yeah, there you go. Hey. Hey. How are you? <laughs> hey, you. <laughs> uh, thank yeah. you for, for coming on coming on here, and, uh, and you've, you've felt the wrath of the FSU fan base lately, and this was actually booked before uh, – we did a very professional booking, David and I did, um, be, before uh, before he pissed off uh, a good chunk of my audience. So, you know, we're going to carry through with it and really just kind of fan the flames. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, you know, the only thing 
if you're, if you're not going to be loved, then you might as well be hated. That's the way I look at it. You know, it's, it, it, I just don't want indifference. So I, I really, I will say I knew coming in that the disappearance would be a train wreck. So I might <laughs> as well set the stage by really making in some obnoxious comments and getting people very fired up. I mean, you, you use statistics to piss people off and there's, um, there's power in that. I feel like, and, and, uh, really what I want to do is talk to you, dude, about, about some, some analytics, statistics, and the importance of those and, and kind of how you've used them in your career to kind of, it apply to FSU here specifically, because this is an FSU podcast, but like how you, how you can apply metrics and whatnot to forming opinions. Um, but first, do you have a, uh, and, and for those of you, don't worry, I'm giving you a more professional introduction uh, before I started recording this too, David. So, uh, don't, oh, don't, okay, good. Yes, good. I, know, I know you're concerned. Uh, but, but for those of you who don't know, David covered ESPN or covered FSU for ESPN. What what was the timeline there when you were down here in Tallahassee? Uh, 2012 and 2013. So I got end of EJ, beginning of Jameis. <laughs> Talk. <laughs> Talk about uh, selling low and buying high. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. It was a, it was a wild ride. We'll put it that way. Um, that gave you an uh, opportunity to spend some time with me. We became friends in, in that short window. Um, and so I think. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm more of a well wisher in that I don't wish you any specific harm. Uh, friend. Uh, yeah, all right. All right. I did. You did drive to the middle of nowhere in Georgia to uh, to my wedding, but I feel like that was just <laughs> like. That really was in the middle of nowhere. That was more based on a dare than anything. <laughs> I'm just happy that uh, we didn't get get ransacked or anything like that. You know, you, there were um, there were people that actually crashed the wedding. There was an old couple that sat in on the ceremony that no one knew who they were, and then they weren't there later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think that's good luck. I think they say that's good luck for for your future future relationship. Is what a random old couple? Maybe uh, what if it was what if it was you and your wife? Like you came back from the past, like in a time machine, yeah, and you just didn't recognize yourselves. Uh, first, I they couldn't gonna... interact with you because that would have changed the space-time continuum. The butterfly effect, if you will. Mm. Correct. I just, it's yeah. weird just to come by back and watch, though, because um, they weren't warning us of anything. You know what I mean? It was just... just... <laughs> <laughs> that's, my, that's my theory, is that <laughs> we don't know that time travel exists because there's a strict rule against interacting. So all time travelers just come back and observe that they don't interact. Um, that's my, this I'm is a at, quantum physics podcast, right? That's what, that's what did, the subject matter is. I did sell people on analytics. So, um, oh, all, the same. <laughs> all right. So back to me, uh, the most embarrassing story or, or the most quintessential Brennan story that you have from, from your time, uh, knowing me and, and covering FSU, uh, with me for that, for that brief window. And I think there were some doozies, but, uh, listeners I mean, may be interested. It's hard to say because really every day was some, semblance of an embarrassment. I mean, it's hard to really, I mean, everybody knows the diesel story by now, I'm sure. But really uh, what the great part about, about that story is when you destroy your rental car by putting diesel gas in it well, on your way to Clemson. Well, yeah, that, I, I apologize for interrupting, but I don't know if my audience, uh, they may not know about it. So if you want to set the scene for them. Uh, so uh, go so ahead. here's the, the, the overarching narrative, of course, is that you had stayed in Atlanta the night before a Clemson-Florida State game. This was, was this 13? Yes, I 13. Yeah, yeah, so the from, infamous from Florida the... State demolishing of Clemson in 2013. So you stayed in Atlanta the night before, got up, get in your rental car, go to drive to Clemson, stop to get gas, and put diesel in it. It was not a diesel <laughs> car. 
This was like your second week on the beat too. I feel like so, <laughs> it was very, very new, uh, and I was very distracted and very eager. Yes. The, now that that will be the takeaway from this story. That's what people will remember, right? And that is a great moment of stupid Brendan, right? But here's there's better parts to this story, in my opinion. Number one being that we had spent so much time talking up the great barbecue at Smoking Pig, <laughs> even though you arrived in Clemson like 45 minutes before kickoff, you guys still went and got barbecue before the game anyway, <laughs> which is brilliant. But then the, 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 the butterfly effect of that, which is that you got there so late that there is no media parking left. And so you parked on the golf course, which everybody does for Clemson games. But the thing is, and the thing that y'all didn't know was that Clemson starts towing those cars. If you haven't moved them by 2 AM. And since you're, media and you're you know writing a bunch of stuff and you were there with other media writing a bunch of stuff y'all didn't leave until like 3 a.m it was the last one in the, the press box course. <laughs> there's no car anymore <laughs> i just remember you telling the story the next day about like the the haze that hung over the golf course and it felt like some sort of horror movie that you were walking into and the car's I, gone and I, you have I, no idea where it is Swear to God, there was a wolf howling somewhere. Um, and, and <laughs> not making that up. There, it was. There is, there is no way like anyone has had a longer, worst day covering college football than you did that day. From from destroying your rental car to having to walk to a tow yard to get the uh, your, your secondary vehicle at like four in the morning in Clemson and then drive back to Atlanta. What time did you actually get like to a point where you could sleep that day? It, 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 well, I, one, I fell asleep while driving at one point uh, with a pa- one of the passengers <laughs> was like, Brenton, Brenton. Uh, I think 6 a.m. fell asleep. And then like we hit the road, like it you know, slept for like two hours. So it was like 8 a.m. Um, yeah. Yeah. Not my, not one of my best, uh, one, one of my best moments. And while Florida state was, was uh, sending a message to the entire world. I feel like I was sending the message to the entire beat. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think it did set the stage for what was to come, but let me ask you this. Uh, the barbecue was worth it. Wasn't it? It was delicious. Uh, and I've been back every year since, but I get there really, really early now. I don't stop at that <laughs> gas station in my, in my defense. And this isn't a great defense. Uh, typically uh, what color uh, is the diesel uh, nozzle on a gas station? Well, not black. The black ones are the, the normal regular ones. gas. Right. right. Well, and usually the diesel sleeper. ones don't even fit in a normal <laughs> in a normal gas tank. Like you have to you can't even fit it in. Yeah, I had to jam it that's in. But what, that's the black one. so surprising. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the best part is, you know, newspaper industry in decline and whatnot, and you know, that cost the company. It ended up not being bad because I didn't start the engine and I realized what I did, so it didn't get up into the engine, but it the car was out of commission for a few days. It was out of fleet. And that's what we had to pay for was like an extra thousand dollars for it not being uh, in commission for, for a week. And I got a call from the HR person, basically to someone like in, in Chicago, you know, so it's a tribute company. And it's so someone that I've never met before called me and is trying to understand what happened. They're like, so why did you put, D-? it wasn't, no, it wasn't why it was how it was how they kept asking. I was like, I don't, I don't know what you want from me. I managed to get it in there. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, and then, you know, like a year later, I'm sure some other poor staff in Chicago got laid off because they had to spend that <laughs> money, his salary on 
your diesel experience. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, probably. No. I, I was what's I helped sink the newspaper industry. So, all right, let's. Well, let's get, it was already. You know what? You know what? You Dr. Kavorki ended. It was already <laughs> on its way out. You just kind of helped push it along a little bit. All right. Speaking of of uh, pushing things along, I want to push along uh, the FSU fan base's uh, disdain for you at this at this moment in time. Good, what did, yeah. What did you do to piss them off? It's hard to even keep track anymore. I don't even remember. I look. I, I think. I think I said that they were maybe border. Oh, you know what it was? I put together a list of my, I said top 25 rankings stunk. And everybody was like, Oh, that's good. You're smart about this. And then I said, what I would do is tiers instead of a one through 25 ranking. And people were like, Oh, this is good. I'm following. I'm following. I'm with you here. And then I put up what my tiers would be and who would be in them. And Florida state was not listed. And that's where I lost them. That's where, that's where the tide turned. (laughs) And, uh, I, but my point was simply that I don't. I think Florida State will be better this year than they were last year. It'd be hard to be significantly worse. But I think that the optimism that is largely enjoyed by Florida State fans right now, because they have Kendall Bryles and they have a bunch of turnover on the offensive line, and good Lord knows that things can't possibly be worse than they were last year on the O line. That that somehow all is right with the world again, and I just don't see it. I think. Personally, I'm, I would have them in the six and maybe seven win range. I just don't see them getting beyond that. And, and one of the points that I tried to make was, yes, some things are better with them, but A, they got a little bit lucky with some of their wins as it was, and six of their losses were by 19 points or more. Mm-hmm. That's not a, a quick turnaround. You don't just change that from one year to the next. Uh, so I, you know, I, I hate to rain on people's parade in the preseason. This is the time where everybody should get to be excited. And good Lord knows virtually every fan base other than Clemson's has been actually even Clemson's been mad at me because they don't <laughs> want to be told that they're number one because they want to be able to play the underdog. So everybody's mad at me at this point in the year because I'm trying to inject some reality into the conversation when of course, July and August is the time for irrationality. Is, is there an ACC program that you haven't pissed off this off season? No, I had Duke fans get really mad at me a couple of months ago. <laughs> what, did they throw like, a bunch wow, of cheese and crackers and wine at you? <laughs> it was, see, I wouldn't mind that. I mean, I'll, I'll take some seconds. Just opened uh, your mouth. Wine. That's yeah. Uh, but no, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, look, the point of being a fan is to not be completely rational about things. And the problem with, with somebody like myself who uses a lot of analytics is that they are on their face a rational blunt object right so uh i don't try to sugarcoat it i don't really think that's my job but you know it is the summer is a good time to be sugarcoating stuff and so i apologize for my lack of sugar i suppose (laughs) sugar sugar uh for so you mentioned six seven win range and i like this is just anecdotally on my end but like i feel like seven eight is kind of the sweet spot so we're not like far off there at all and you know i'm i it has been interesting, though, to see the reaction on our message board uh, as the offseason has progressed because, you know, six and six was kind of what people were thinking. There wasn't a whole lot of optimism. But as camp ramps up and, you know, the camp coverage and people, you know, players every year talking about doing this better, doing that better. And we write about what the players are saying. Uh, the optimism swells. And, and now people are talking about nine wins and, and you know, maybe a, a two loss season. And, and to me, that feels a little far fetched given where FSU is coming from. Uh, and I think what you're basing your opinion, David, on is, is you looked, uh, you, you took a look back at, at teams that had 
uh, what five and seven or you know, basically sub 500 records with the amount of, of 19 plus point losses FSU had in recent history and uh, a, a drastic turnaround wasn't really evident aside from what one or two schools. Right. So, and even those two schools were really not good comparison points for where Florida state was coming from. I mean, the average, I think out of the teams that I looked at the next year was five and seven, which I don't think is going to make anybody at Florida state happy. Now you can make the argument FSU has more talent than most of those teams. And that's probably true. But I think, you know, Florida state had this talent last year. It's not like there's a drastically different amount of talent on this year's roster. The problem that they had last year was clearly that injuries were to some extent, I think the smaller issue, the bigger issue was that there just wasn't enough talent in this one area. And that one area, the trickle down effect made everything else worse. So I don't know. That and that, that area is the offensive line. That correct? Area is the offensive line. Right. Right. Yeah. right. And if you look back again, historically, and, and this includes teams where there is a lot of talent, blue chip talent on the rest of the roster. Historically, offensive lines don't get turned around in a year. They are rebuilt from scratch and it takes some time. And that again is, is not, I think patience is not a virtue for Florida state fans. And it is certainly not time is not a thing that is on Willie Taggart's side right now. So there is a demand for the O-line to turn around quickly. And look, the scheme is different, so that should help. The personnel is different, that should help. Legitimately, it couldn't be any worse, at least in terms of the run blocking, than it was last year. So all of those things have to get better. But the question is, if you, if you were the 129th best offensive line in college football last year, and you get a good bit better, and you go from 129 to 95 is that a big enough leap to get you from six losses by 19 plus points and a five and seven record to eight wins? Mm-hmm. I don't, I think it's a, I think it's a longer road than people think that it is. And, and I say this too, not just to be down on Florida state, but to say like, if they get to eight and four this year, Florida state fans should be throwing a party and congratulating Willie Taggart on a massively well done job because it is going to be a very hard road to get there. It's not to say that they can't do it, but if they do, I hope it's appreciated how difficult that journey was. Uh, I agree. I think eight wins is that, that feel good spot for the fan base because, uh, and for FSU coaches to be able to really sell that and, and pitch uh, on the recruiting trail that, that they're having quantifiable growth and, and moving in the right direction. If you go from, from five to eight, I know that doesn't sound like a ton, uh, but when you look at the schedule, it's not necessarily an easy one. It's not as hard as last year, but you know, eight wins with that schedule shows that you're well, moving in the right direction. And if you go back and just look, I mean, there's not a lot of teams every year that add three wins to their total. I mean, that's a rarity. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, somebody does it every year. A few teams will do it every year, but three wins is a big jump for any team. So, I think when you, when you're talking about a sample size of 12, just adding one extra win is real improvement. And sometimes luck is on your side and sometimes it's not, and that can move you by a win or two, but three wins is a big jump. It means that legitimate improvement happened. So I, again, I'm a little less optimistic, I think, than most people in Florida state, but that's, I've, you look at the numbers from last year, it's hard to be optimistic. I know Florida state fans will say last year was, not a good starting point because a lot has changed, but 
Kendall Browns doesn't have any eligibility left. He's not going out there and playing. So you can call the best plays in the world. It doesn't doesn't matter if you don't have the the guys up front to get it done. Let's let's talk about the Browns effect, and and that's something that I know FSU has is almost marketed Kendall Browns, especially like in the spring game, as like a reason to be excited in this new look offense. Um, and FSU fans are excited about it. Uh, when you look back at his track record at Houston, FAU, when he did it two years at Baylor. There's a lot of really compelling evidence that says he's one very very good at running his offense and installing it, and two, uh, getting guys to learn that offense and executing it very very early on, very quickly. I mean, he had drastic turnarounds at FAU and Houston, but you know this is a different level of competition at Florida State and what he's going to see week in week out in the ACC. Uh, I guess realistically, what what kind of impact can an offensive coordinator, and from your time just covering? Other schools, like anecdotally, uh, if there is any statistical evidence, like what can an offensive coordinator, a good one, do for changing the entire complexion of an offense in just one offseason? So, you know, within the ACC, what's probably a very good uh, example is, is Syracuse because Dino Babers came from that same Art Bryles offense, right? They're running right. something very similar. Now, where Dino started at Syracuse was a lot further behind the eight ball than Florida State is because there just was not blue chip talent on that Syracuse roster. But they, Syracuse won four games the year before Dino, and then the next two years won four games. It took a long time to build that. Now, when things got rolling, they got rolling last year. They won 10 games. They beat Clemson two years ago and probably should have beaten them last year. It is a very good indication that long-term there is a lot of room for success running that offense, but Dino Babers is awful good at it. And Dino Babers has a good, had a good, really good track record with it too, but it didn't happen overnight. And again, Florida state fans will hear this and say, well, Florida state's different than Syracuse. And that's true. But I, I still think that it is very hard to make drastic changes overnight when things started off as badly as they did with that Florida state offensive line. And, you know, the other thing that that I've had a couple of coaches tell me is that there is a style of offensive linemen, a physical uh, look that, that, or the tools that fit what Kendall Bryles wants to do. And that this group of offensive linemen may not exactly match that. So I Mm. think it's a bigger challenge for Kendall Bryles than, uh, maybe some of his previous stops have been because he's a little bit more trying to fit some square pegs into a round hole of what he's trying to do. So uh, will they be better? Yes, they can't be worse. Of course they'll be better. But again, I, what I've tried to, what, I'm, what I've been trying to say is that the road from, from where they were to where they want to be is probably longer than a lot of people are giving it credit for. It's an interesting point you made, David, with with the Bryles prototypes, I guess, on the offensive line. Uh, do you have a little bit more insight, like what what that w- ideally would look like, like in say two years, uh, what he would want to those guys to develop into and, and look like? Well, right. I mean, you're you're trying to get guys who are used to playing in space a little bit. That it is a lot less, you know, power running style. It's more of that sort of power spread, if anything. And and there's you're, you're looking for probably a little bit more athletic. And, and in a lot of cases, smaller alignment, which, again, worked well in the Big 12 and worked well at some of the group of five schools where you're not necessarily using uh, – you, you don't have the, the type of, of pass rushers like uh, Bradley Chubb or uh, Dick Beasley or uh, 
um, you know, Christian Wilkins and guys that have been coming through the ACC. So I think even if he gets exactly the style of, of O-lineman that he wants, I think there's still open questions about whether or not that holds up in the long term against ACC defenses. Uh, again, you know, Kendall Browns is a smart guy, though. He's, this isn't his first rodeo. He knows how to coach some football. So I think he makes adjustments too. I mean, it's not, I don't know that it's necessarily the smartest thing to look and say, well, he did this at Houston or FAU. So this is what he's going to do here. He's in a different landscape too. And I have no doubt that he'll be making adjustments to fit what he knows he's going to be facing in the ACC as well. Uh, everything I've heard from preseason is that they're focusing on uh, the passing games, either max protect or get rid of the ball really, 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 really fast, which uh, makes sense with the offensive line and with, with the offensive line in mind, uh, David, you were here in 2012, 2013. Uh, you saw, you know, there were some ups and downs uh, before then and, and since then under Rick Trickett when he was offensive line coach. Uh, but 13, obviously, a really good year. Uh, what the hell happened with Florida State's offensive line? You, and, and you've also, like, covered and documented other ACC schools that have built up their offensive lines. So I guess, one, in your estimation, like, what happened for it to get to the place where it was last year? And two, uh, how kind of how long can it take to really fix a disastrous unit like the offensive line one that takes you know time for guys to develop i guess right well i mean this is why i think offensive line is by far the hardest position to evaluate coming out of high school because so much of an offensive lineman's success or failure is based on body type and size and when you're 17 and 16 you have not filled out yet you haven't been in a a nutrition and training program at a college level that's going to develop you, you really just, you're project. I mean, it's all projection with offensive linemen. And so I think for a long time, Florida state did a pretty good job of projecting ahead, but sometimes that's luck too. You know, sometimes you, you recruit a dozen O linemen and 10 of them pan out. And some of them, sometimes you recruit a dozen guys who look just as good and three of them pan out. And, mm-hmm. and that's just sort of the way it is because people's bodies don't necessarily always grow in the way that you expect them to. And some guys are better equipped to add 50 or 60 pounds and still remain athletic and, and quick and and be able to move. And some guys, when they put that weight on are not the same player anymore. It's just, it's such a hard position to predict coming out of high school. And you know, truth be told, it's hard even still moving forward when you look at the NFL and you look at the, the O linemen who typically have, have gotten drafted higher and who have a lot of success at the next level it's not just all Clemson and Alabama and Ohio state. There's a lot of small school guys. There's a lot of guys who started out at a different position and moved to O-line. It's uh, I mean, it, it is a, a really difficult position to do consistently and, and particularly quickly. And I remember, you know, so I, I, I tweeted out the stat that is just mind boggling to me that on first and second down runs <laughs> last year, Florida state had a total of two yards before contact two average two yards before contract kind of (laughs) had a total of two. That is insane to me. Now the next worst team I could find in recent history was the 2014 Wake Forest team, which mind you was still well ahead of Florida state, but that was the worst (laughs) offensive line. I think I've ever seen at the power five level. They were so bad. And was Clawson then that there? Because he pretty much he pretty that much was Clawson, that was Clawson's first, first year, and I remember him telling me, yeah. "Look, some of these guys, if I was coaching a high school team, I wouldn't start." So <laughs> that's kind of the situation that they were in. But 
The crazy thing is those same guys, four years later, a couple of them were all ACC guys. A couple of them got drafted or at least, you know, signed free agent contracts in the NFL that those guys developed, but it took years. It took it. I mean, they, it was, they were all juniors before they were competent and they were seniors before they were really good. And again, you think, well, you're Florida state, you're, you're recruiting better guys. You have more money to spend. Maybe you can fast track that a little bit and possibly, but again, it's hard to change guys' bodies overnight. It, it is, you can teach a guy skills to catch a ball, or you can teach a guy technique in running a route or defending a pass. That can click overnight. You can't add 50 pounds to a guy's frame overnight. That takes time, period. Yeah, and even like for at 24-7, so like our, our guys who evaluate offensive linemen have really, and Charles Power talked about this before, and he's very forward-thinking and, and using uh, NFL draft trends and, and a lot of analytics too, and and how he projects. But the new thing, man, is, is that we look at an offensive lineman and, and would much prefer a long, tall, like athletic skinny type, uh, out, you know, project him out and see, okay, what happens when he puts on bulk versus some guy who comes in kind of frumpy and, and overweight, because traditionally that's what NFL teams have, have ended up going towards that same method is like, okay, let's see what we can develop a guy into. If he has this athleticism, uh, it just seems like the NFL is going towards athleticism and that's trickled down to college football or one way or the other. But, to your point, that then creates a really difficult projection. Like, how does a 260-pound kid, like FSU got a guy last year, two classes ago, Jalen Goss, who's 6'7 and moves really well, but he's like 260 pounds and he's struggling to gain bulk right now because you just have no idea how 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 an 18-year-old, I guess, develops and projects. So, uh, to your point, like two or three-year turnaround usually on the offensive line, right? Like, it's usually, I mean... Uh, I don't really think we see a whole lot of one-year fixes unless it's a bunch of JUCO guys. And even then it seems like a, a dicey proposition. Right. And that's the other thing is it's not just about getting one guy a lot better. It's five guys that have got to play together and, and function together as a unit. Because if one guy blows a, blows an assignment, then it destroys the whole play. So it's, it's really not about like, Hey, can we get two more guys ACC ready this year. It's you've got to have five guys that can be functional on the offensive line. So it's all, again, it's like, it's like playing the lottery. You know, it's, you, it's great to hit the first three numbers, but if you don't have all of them, you're not, you're not coming away with that payday. So uh, that's really where I'm at. Isn't it? I, I'm, it's if, if you said Florida state's biggest problem last year was anywhere else in the field, I would think that it was an easier turnaround than looking at what that offensive line was and saying we fixed it this year. I just don't, I don't know that there's a lot of examples of anyone who has been able to do that, regardless of whether you're changing coaches, personnel, scheme, whatever. It's just very hard to go from five terrible guys to five pretty good guys from one year to the next. You had another, another stat that you put out recently on, on the Twitter, and uh, I'm going to read it and, and ask for you to just put some context to it. But it's if FSU uh, had a chunk pass play of 20 plus yards. It scored an average of 4.23 points per drive last season. That's uh, basically it was a little bit below the FBS average, but close to it. When FSU didn't have a 20 yard completion, it scored, uh, uh, let's see, just 0.51 points. So half a point per drive. That was worse than college football. Um, what contextually does that mean we saw last year? Right. So it essentially says that unless the passing game had a big play, FSU had no chance of doing anything. Now, I think 
we kind of fundamentally understand that because the run game was so bad, but even if they had a chunk run play, they still weren't very good. And, and Cam Akers to his credit managed to pick up a few of those chunk run plays. I mean, he had, he was getting stopped at the line half the time, but one out of every seven or eight runs, he could actually break a little something. But the problem is that it wasn't repeatable on the same drive. So essentially, mm-hmm. unless they picked up a big pass play down the field, they had almost no chance of scoring. And so if you are a defense, what do you say when you see something like that? Well, all right, I'm going to guard the perimeter and put six guys in the box and know I can stop them. Well, then you've got almost no answers if you're Florida State. So mm-hmm. that's a lot of what you saw last year is that no one was afraid of the run game. So they would double outside. So there's no real vertical attack. And then you're out of options. You just got to hope you out athleted somebody. And to Florida State's credit, there were occasions where that happened. And mm-hmm. as much as I think people wanted to bang on DeAndre Francois, and certainly there's a lot of opportunity to do so. The passing game was the only thing that kept Florida State even semi-relevant last year. Yeah, Tamori and Terry having a breakout season uh, and being a deep play threat certainly certainly was the bread and butter of the offense. And if you can call it that, it's like stale bread and, and kind of moldy butter. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but he was he was uh, revelatory for them and, and someone that looks really good in camp right now, uh, even coming off of the uh, knee injury. Like, I can't believe he's running around the way he is uh, three weeks after having his knee cut open. That's it's insane. Um, but you mentioned DeAndre Francois and. You know, we, we do harp on the offensive line a lot from last year, rightfully so. Uh, I'm not sure how many FSU games you got a chance to watch in total, but but to me, man, and I know what the numbers say, uh, it just seemed like DeAndre Francois was a really poor fit for what FSU wanted to do. Uh, he struggled making pre-play reads. He struggled making in-play reads. His strength was getting the ball downfield, and that's something he did well as a redshirt freshman under Jimbo Fisher and then the pro-style offense, but... When you have an offense that relies so much on making like the, the pick and roll type of concept of making a quick read, you have a guy who can't do that. I guess what, uh, how much credit or how much blame do you think DeAndre gets, and and is it deserved for what last year was? And and does having maybe less talented quarterbacks, but guys who just can do those concepts better, uh, how much can that actually help for FSU moving forward? Yeah, I mean, look, it's a good question because certainly you look Thank you. at. Uh, <laughs> I take it back. Uh, but you look, you look at a, a, a place like Oklahoma, or, you know, a coach like Lincoln Riley, who the, the scheme really makes the quarterback, right? So they can, and certainly you look at Baker Mayfield and, and Kyler Murray. And, okay. They're Heisman's. They were great. Look what he did at ECU. And he was putting Shane Harden into, into huge numbers like that. So this is, and I think this is a little bit of what Florida state had hoped the scheme would be there is that it, the personnel are almost secondary to the scheme. As long as you have a guy who can do the basics of what we want to do, the scheme's going to be successful. Well, DeAndre Francois is not the guy to do those basics. And I've talked <laughs> to a couple of coaches around the league who have said that they were scratching their heads about why he was starting in the first place, that, that Blackman right. was the better option from day one. So I, th- I think again, people inside FSU's building thought the same thing too, dude. Like that wasn't just outside um, other than the head coach though. Right. And, and that, that there lies a problem, but anyways, continue. Sorry. Yeah. But, but to, to at least put a small caveat on all of this is I don't know what quarterback could have played behind that offensive line with True. zero support from the run game and had a significantly higher amount of success because yes, you can certainly blame Francois for 
his unwillingness to run, his bad pre-snap reads, whatever. But that offensive line was so bad that even if you fixed all the quarterback problems, I don't know that it would have drastically changed what they could do. But, you know, the funny thing is, too, I've talked to coaches who, who played against them last year and said, like, it's hard to evaluate any of the skill guys because the O-line was so bad. You mm-hmm. couldn't really even tell a lot of times whether the play that they had drawn up, like if somebody else could have done it better or didn't do it well, because the play never had a chance to succeed from the snap. I think I've done an amazing job in setting you up to be hated even more by Florida state fans. This has been a, uh, this has been <laughs> mission, mission accomplished. You know, it's funny. It's like the, uh, you know, FSU was in the, uh, this isn't, you know, that he think that was a secret. FSU was in the, the grad transfer market at quarterback and, and really struggled initially. Uh, and they finally got Alex Hornibrook, but that wasn't their first option or second option. Um, I don't, I don't even know if he was their third or fourth. And then they like him enough and, and he's doing an okay job in camp here and competing with James Blackman. But, you know, those guys, you know, Jalen Hurts, Justin Fields, when that was the cream of the crop initially for, for transfer options, the offensive line scared them away, was my understanding. Like, I think that made it really, really difficult for, for guys to want to come play for Florida State. And you're talking about, you know, dynamic athletes that were that were skeptical of what they could do. Um, so that remains to be seen, I guess, as my point, is what what Florida State can do, even with Kendall Browse, uh, how much he can work as magic. And I think it will look much more functional, much better, but what is functional better equate to, right? That's, that's your point initially, David, is that uh, you, it could look better and you can close the gap and not have blowout losses. But if you're still, you know, if you cut from 19 points to 10 point losses, like you're still in that six or seven win range. Is that, is that a fair way to kind of tie this all up? Right, exactly. I mean, that's kind of what, what I think it is. And I, I think there will be no question at the end of the year that 2019 Florida state is better than 2018 Florida state, but that, doesn't necessarily mean that the record is going to look dramatically different. I think a bowl game is a real good season for Florida state. I think if they get to seven, that shows that real significant progress was made. Personally, I think if they get to eight, then Willie should be considered a coach of the year candidate. That would be quite the, uh, the narrative uh, turnaround. Speaking of narrative, you know, it'd been really interesting, man, is if they had found a way to not lose to Miami last year, if they had not blown that lead, and they can somehow go six and six and win a bowl game. Like I, I wonder what the perception on the program is if if they would have had all those deficiencies and flaws and these terrible numbers wouldn't have looked much different. But you went to a bowl game. Uh, what what the viewpoint is nationally and, and outside of FSU and even internally. Like I, I just feel like it would be a lot different uh, if you didn't lose that bowl streak. Like I think that's one thing that people harp on is is losing the streak. Um, and unfortunately for Willie, that that's a reality. I guess. Yeah. And I mean, look, that's you, you lose to Miami. It's bad regardless. And you lose to Miami. And that's the thing that kept you out of a bowl game. Yeah. That's a, a problem too. And look, I, you know, Justin Fuente at Virginia tech is sort of in this situation that Willie's in and that there's a danger that the narrative becomes reality. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, we're talking about narrative right now. And I think smart people are all capable of separating the what if narratives from the reality of things. But as those narratives start to gain steam and the folks who are perpetuating those narratives have more and more evidence to point to, you really become, uh, it becomes a danger of perception is reality. And um, that's, I think, the, the, the combustible balance that, uh, that, that 
Fuente and Taggart and, and a handful of other coaches around the country are dealing with this year is that things might not be that bad, but sometimes if they seem that bad, as you said, when you talk about the, the transfer market, how things seem matters a lot now too. So I, mm-hmm. I think that's, that's, it's something to think about for sure. Even, yeah, even the recruiting class for Florida state this past year, uh, it was 18th, you know, on national signing day and, and, uh, not a secret that a lot of schools used last season and, and some of the disorganization you saw on the field to, to really hammer that, that point home with recruits and that, that did not help FSU. So yeah, that's like you said, that narrative becomes a reality at some point or another after a while. Um, and it gets difficult to sift through, but all right, dude. So I had a little bit of homework for you. You're a Simpsons fan. If I gave you a lot of thought, by the way, ha- have you, or have you not? <laughs> No, I have. I gave it. Okay. This is where I spent most of my most of my morning <laughs> considering this. <laughs> Good, excellent, excellent. All right. So, if you had to make FSU into a Simpsons character by year, let's go with 2013 national championship year. What would that character be? So, my initial thought was they were in Ned Flanders. They were just like this, so annoyingly perfect, right? Just <laughs> like sculpted everything. But then I was like, well. Only Jameis stuff and then Ned Flanders. That doesn't really work. So then I thought, you know who they really were? They were Mr. Burns. They were Ooh. like, let's block out the sun from the rest of the <laughs> level, diabolically good. Like they were, you can't, they were like so just way ahead of everybody else. The entire conference sort of just had to work within their orbit and whatever they said went. I think Dabo was their Smithers that year. It was, uh, it, it, that so yes, that to me, Mr. Burns felt like the appropriate comparison for 2013 FSU. My my favorite Mr. Burns moment. I don't know why it stuck with me so profoundly. I don't even watch The Simpsons a ton anymore, but I grew up on it. It was when he was really really sick. And he went to the doctors and uh, they found out that he had like uh, thousands of ailments going on, and they used the analogy of a, like a bunch of little action figures trying to squeeze through the door and they couldn't. And and he goes, oh, so I'm invincible. They know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the exact yeah. opposite. One gets through, you're done. I'm invincible. I think that. I think that was. I think that seems accurate to me. Yeah. Uh, and then we found out in 2014 that those flaws were exposed yeah. eventually yeah. against Oregon. So one of the little exactly. See, if, that analogy just keeps working. I'm telling Perfect. you, I was, I was happy with that one. All right, all right, let's go. I like it. I think that that's astute. Uh, 2018, so last season, uh, what was Florida State Simpson character? So, first of all, I came up with a really good one for 2017, which was they were Miss, Mrs. Krabappel in 2017, <laughs> in which in which Mr. Krabappel chased something small and fuzzy down a rabbit hole. Uh, Mr. Krabappel being Jimbo in this scenario. Uh, so that was my 2017. 2018 to me felt, felt very Ralph Wiggleish. They were. The backpack, I don't know, that kind of, you know, they just couldn't get out of their own way. It was, they felt very, felt, it was, you almost like, you almost had to kind of love them because it was so sad in a way. So I, 2018 to me felt very Ralph Wiggumish. Oh, banana. Um, 2019. <laughs> me, me fell English? That's impossible. <laughs> All right, 2019, this is predictive. What kind of Simpsons character will they be in 2019? So this is the harder one because again, I, I'm a little more of a pessimist here. So uh, to me, they're a little bit of like a mo in 2019. There's okay. just, you know, I don't look. No, they're not going to be sexy. They're not going to be, you know, they're, they're not going to be a superstar. 
they're maintaining their business, right? It's they've got the same customers coming in day after day. There was that one episode where he met the cute flower salesman, but then he couldn't get out of his own way either. Uh, they're emotions lack to me. They'll have their moments. At the end of the day, it's not going to be quite great. But Mo, good character, strong character, Mo. I think that's an astute one too. I like all three of them. Um, and, and with that, I think we're going to wrap up the podcast. I'm looking at this right now, like Brad Pitt looking looking down in uh, Inglorious Bastards. I think this is my masterpiece. I think this podcast <laughs> with, with you here, you're you're my uh, BJ Novak looking at, and, and this is this is the masterpiece, and it's all because of you. Well, uh, I'm glad we could play some Nazis together. <laughs> <laughs> all right, dude. Thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Good, sir.